It's Thursday, September 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The effort to recall California Governor Gavin Newsom has failed, and by a wide margin. The race was called just 50 minutes after the polls closed. So how did Newsom beat the recall? Huge Democratic turnout and a perfect foil in the leading Republican candidate, Larry Elder. The rise of Elder helped the Newsom campaign turn the race into a more traditional choice election and motivated voters to get to the polls. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for a race that started off as a long shot, became unexpectedly competitive, and ended with a blowout. Next, new census data shows that when accounting for pandemic relief aids such as direct stimulus payments and enhanced unemployment benefits, the poverty rate fell to 9.1%, lifting nearly 8.5 million people out of poverty. The other story we saw was the population of those without health insurance rose, mostly due to people losing private insurance as they lost jobs. We will most likely now see arguments in favor of more aid like this to continue help lifting people out of poverty. Amy Goldstein, national healthcare policy reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to people's right to vote without fear of fake fraud or voter suppression. We said yes to women's fundamental constitutional right to decide for herself what she does with her body, her fate and future. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, good to be here. Well, the recall effort against California Governor Gavin Newsom has come and gone. He survived that recall overwhelmingly. I mean, people were calling it a landslide. We're still waiting for final numbers. That might still take some time, but with about 70% of the vote in, the no vote, which means we want to keep Gavin Newsom, that was about 64%. Yes votes to remove him, 36%. So very convincingly won this thing. And, and you know, a lot of people were saying, hey, but this might take a long time to decide because of a lot of mail-in voting. But uh, networks and the AP called it within 50 minutes of polls closing. So, David, let's run through this. How did Gavin Newsom survive this recall? Yeah, well, I think that there was a point earlier in this the, the summer where there was a concern for Democrats about turnout and whether Democrats were even aware that there was an election going on. And if they were, would they be as motivated as Republicans? And so I think you saw Newsom do two things. First, he stepped in on COVID regulations in a really aggressive way. And mask and vaccine mandates, especially in California, are very popular. So that drew a lot of attention to him because so much public focus is on COVID right now. And, and the other thing is that he benefited from this huge gift of Larry Elder emerging as the top Republican opponent. So instead of an up or down vote on Newsom, he was able to make this more of a traditional choice election. And in California, a choice election between a Democrat and a Republican statewide is pretty predictable. I heard, uh, you know, one of the pundits on TV put it this way, that Newsom for the longest time was just punching in the air nothing really to hit. And then Larry Elder came along and kind of was vaulted as the number one prospect there to replace him. And then he had that foil. He was able to make it, as you mentioned, that kind of one-on-one comparison and obviously painted him to the farthest right that he could, basically as another President Trump. Yeah. And let's be fair, the uh, Elder, he didn't need to be painted all that much. He, He was a grab bag of Republican 
far right kind of points. So things like suggesting that the slave owners might be owed reparations, that opposing minimum wage, those kind of things are, are antithetical to where the California electorate is. So when you say paint him, I mean, he had the accurate information to use, I think, that the painting, as you point out, came in the money that Newsom was able to spend to elevate Elder. So Elder couldn't have done it on his own. He didn't have that much money, but Newsom could put millions of dollars behind telling Californians who they were voting against. You know, one of the interesting things that I was uh, seeing through all, all this, uh, so, you know, we see vote totals right now, 64% no, 36% yes. That pretty close to the election that Newsom had against John Cox when he was first elected governor. Very, very close. So overall, it seems like really nobody in the state changed their mind. Democrats and Republicans coming in at very similar numbers. So in the end, it was kind of a huge waste of time and money, really. I think the state is going to have to pay to a tune of $300 million, I think, you know, when, when all is said and done. So this is going to be a big taxpayer cost, too. Well, sure. But think of all the uh, political professionals, the TV advertising money. The TV executives need to feed their children, too. So um, <laughs> right. there's a contribution to the, the economy here. <laughs> yeah, it was expensive and politically, uh, I think, a waste. And for Republicans, I think in worse shape now than they were before the election, just having this this drubbing behind them. I, yeah. I mean, it was really, it, it, like I said, in the end, a very vocal minority that played out exactly the same way when Gavin Newsom was first brought into office. And, you know, and the, obviously the recall proponents definitely benefited from all that extra time to collect signatures. You know, COVID plays such a huge thing in all of this. They got extra time to collect signatures because of COVID. That's right. And that's, uh, I think if this result had been closer, there would be a huge dissection of the Democrats' um, decision not to appeal that ruling that gave them extra time. That clearly was a pivotal point in the, the campaign. You made mention in the article as well that, you know, before even all these final ballots were cast, that Newsom's advisors were already selling his campaign as a template, as a model for Democrats nationally. And we saw national figures get involved, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, President Joe Biden. But they're selling this campaign kind of as a template for the midterms. How's that working out? Well, I think the jury's out. Uh, there's some evidence that it's hard to say anything that happens in California should be replicated elsewhere. Maybe, I mean, politically, maybe with the exception of Orange County, which could be instructive to some suburban races in other parts of the country. But there is polling that shows that vaccine and mask mandates are not just popular in California. They're popular in places like Wisconsin, a battleground state. They're popular nationally. And so, and there are places where Republican governors who have resisted those mandates, we've seen their approval ratings decline. So Greg Abbott in Texas, uh, DeSantis in Florida. So there's some indication that this may be a winning message for Democrats. I think it's too early to tell. And I think that what you pointed out about the vote totals initially being so where they were along partisan lines to begin with is indicative of the idea that, that maybe the what you're arguing about or the argument you put forward may matter much less that people are already locked in their camps. You know, the people who will vote are not going to be persuaded one way or another. It's, it's all about turning out your base. So I don't know. I think the jury's out. What about the, the Trump angle? Because Gavin Newsom obviously was bringing Trump out a lot when President Biden was in California stumping with him. You know, he kept saying this is also about Trumpism. We have to fight Trumpism. 
So how did that play into the whole uh, whole thing? And I think that's pretty resonant for Democrats. You know, that's the turnout chime, right? You, you say Trump and that gets people excited because you look at an election like this, Republicans who want to get rid of Newsom were furious at Newsom. They were motivated to vote and Democrats had to find something to get Democrats excited about. And frankly, it wasn't much of an affirmative case that Newsom put forward. It wasn't, I'm great for reasons A, B or C. It's look at the alternative. And so I think that that was the message at the end. And that's the one that worked. Yeah. yeah I mean, the whole trajectory and, and, you know, David, you've been on the podcast a number of times and we talked about it. The enthusiasm gap was the main thing that Democrats were worried about. Nobody wanted to come out and vote. Nobody wanted to do it. And I guess it wasn't until Elder came along that really gave them that motivation to get out there. That's the thing that they had been fighting the whole time. You know, some people in the campaign, I, I thought it was they had an interesting take on the public polling that put this race a lot closer a few weeks ago. And that was that they largely agreed with the pollsters on the enthusiasm gap and realized that their supporters were not as enthusiastic. But where they disagreed was in applying that to turnout. And the Newsom campaign believed that they could get Democrats to turn out even if they weren't enthusiastic. I think one of his advisors described it as something like taking out the trash, that, that they would just do it. And in the end, I mean, the, you're right, there's still lots of ballots to be counted, but the turnout is looking pretty strong for an off-year election. So yeah. it does seem that they were compelled to do that. And for Republicans, you know, what do they do next? Because Newsom's going to be up for re-election in just a little bit more than a year. That's why, you know, other people were like, you know, why is this even happening now? But what do they do? Uh, Larry Elder, you know, in some of his statements basically alluded saying that he'd probably run again. Um, you know, some of the other guys in there, John Cox, Kevin Falconer, they might come back again. But what does the GOP do to elevate a Republican to even stand a chance? I mean, they, they would need some type of more moderate Republican. And you've been saying it too, you know, somebody that appeals to more than just the base. And it wasn't so long ago that you know, Meg Whitman came along as a moderate Republican, and she was probably the right kind of moderate Republican to run in California, meaning she had gobs of her own money and not not John Cox money. I mean, not a few million dollars, many, many, many millions of dollars to spend. And she lost. But the race was not a blowout. Uh, and there were times during that campaign where it seemed that she could win. So I do think they need a moderate, but I'm not sure how the party gets a moderate through the top two primary. That seems very, very difficult. And that's something the elders assent just reinforces. So where does the party go? I mean, it has a convention in a couple of weekends. I imagine you'll see, you know, this is Larry Elder's party right now if he wants it. And you'll see some very uncomfortable traditionalist Republicans trying to figure out what kind of brand they can have as a party while still trying to win some very competitive House races where Republicans are competitive. I mean, remember, Republicans picked up four House seats in California in a presidential election last year. It was a pretty good down ballot showing for them. So they're not without flickers of hope. Statewide's probably off the table, but those House races are going to be critical nationally. Definitely. You know, like you said, if this is Elder's party, I mean, people are saying that he's the reason why they lost. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of stuff that the GOP has to work through. And I just want to end off with uh, lifting a line from your article. You know, this whole race has been a story of something that was almost a laughable long shot. It became unexpectedly competitive and then settled right where it began with Newsom prevailing in a blowout. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. The census 
began incorporating, in addition to the official poverty number, something called the supplemental poverty rate. And that takes into account how many people are still poor, even if you take into account all kinds of government assistance that people sometimes get. Joining us now is Amy Goldstein, national health care policy reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Good to be with you. wanted to talk about this uh, Census Bureau report uh, on poverty. Uh, overall, in 2020, poverty fell. Uh, it's kind of a weird accounting number. The official rate rose up to about 11.4% of people in poverty in the country. But when you account for pandemic relief aid, we're talking about the stimulus stuff. Uh, we're talking about un- enhanced unemployment benefits. The poverty rate actually fell to 9.1%. Uh, so, Amy, uh, start us off by uh, by telling us you know, what these Census Bureau reports are and w- why they're important. And then we'll get into some other uh, of the other numbers. Yes. Yeah, so every year, um, the Census Bureau puts out a couple of really important reports that basically document the state of Americans' well-being. Um, One of the reports is about income and poverty. And um, as you mentioned, there are two poverty numbers that are used. Starting a little more than a decade ago, um, the census began incorporating, in addition to the official poverty number, something called the supplemental poverty rate. And that takes into account how many people are still poor even if you take into account all kinds of government assistance that people sometimes get. So that's why we've got these two different numbers this year that are pointing in different directions. Um, At the same time, the census points out an annual report on health insurance in the United States. And that too is considered the gold standard for understanding what's happening with people's access to health coverage. Yeah. And that's another important part. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, So from the report, we saw that 8.5 million people were lifted out of poverty last year, and they define that as a family of four living on less than about $26,250 a year. Um, So, I mean, really, it it shows that, you know, because a lot of people were losing jobs, obviously, throughout the pandemic, you know, all the craziness, um, you know, the 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 stimulus payments and the enhanced unemployment benefits were definitely lifelines for a lot of Americans. That's right. Um, So there are these annual reports, and the ones that came out yesterday have been particularly eagerly anticipated by people who pay attention to these kind of things because every year's report looks at the previous year. So this is a report for 2020. So it's the first census figures that really take into account the experience that Americans had during this coronavirus pandemic that obviously had such a huge effect on the economy and people's well-being. And what the uh, supplemental poverty figure shows is that the fact that Congress and uh, then President Trump rushed out a whole lot of um, pandemic relief packages that included things like stimulus payments that millions of Americans received made a big difference in buffering what would have otherwise been a much more severe decline into poverty. What are we seeing when this comes to health insurance? Because obviously, you know, a lot of people were losing their jobs. So, uh, you know, if they had private insurance tied to their to their work, you know, they were losing that, obviously. So um, what did we see when it came to health insurance? Well, when it comes to health insurance, uh, the report yesterday showed that there are 28 million Americans uh, who had no health insurance at any point last year in 2020. And that was 2 million more than was the case in 2019. 
Now, what that figure masks is that there's been a shift going on. I mean, for uh, a number of years now, um, the proportion of people in this country who get health benefits through their jobs have been declining. Now, that was going on to some extent before the pandemic. But as you say, the pandemic caused, especially in the early months, a lot of people to lose their work. And for those who had gotten health benefits through a job, they lost the health insurance uh, a few months later because often the benefits kind of lingered past the job for a little while. But what these numbers show yesterday is that while the proportion of people getting job-based coverage declined, it declined a full percentage point to a little more than 54%. So just over half were getting health benefits through a job. The proportion who were getting some kind of public insurance increased, and that kept the overall uninsured number from getting even worse than it did. So you had two big things that happened. There were some more people who joined Medicaid, which is the insurance system for people who are pretty poor in this country. And at the same time, you had an even bigger increase in people joining Medicare, which is the insurance program the federal government has for older Americans. Now, the Medicaid growth was probably because of the pandemic, but the Medicare growth was just because there are more older people in this country than they used to be. And then in, for the handful of states that uh, have chosen not to expand this Medicaid eligibility under the Affordable Care Act, uh, the, the census data was showing that the rate of uninsured was, was really high in those states. That's exactly right. If I recall, that rate was something like 12 percent, a little more than 12 percent of the people were uninsured in a dozen states in which the state governments have chosen not to expand Medicaid um, as the Affordable Care Act, the big health care law, allows states to do. And that was about twice the rate of uninsured as in the rest of the country. So what does all all this do for the conversation about uh uh, you know, what, what's going on through Congress right now? Uh, we're seeing uh, Congress debate these $3.5 trillion package um, that, uh, uh, you know, has a lot of social safety net uh, programs in it, uh, the Biden's Build Back Better proposal. So, well, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, this census data is kind of proving that that these things work and help lift people out, out of poverty and, and whatnot. So it, it, what does this do for that type of, for that conversation going forward? Well, the argument that you just articulated is certainly one that um, uh, the Biden administration can be expected to make. It's a little too early to know exactly how the what's called budget reconciliation process is playing out in real time on Capitol Hill is going to end. There are a lot of different opinions, even among Democrats, about how much government, uh, government can afford to spend on social programs and which ones are the most important on health care and a lot of other parts of the social safety net. But the census data, as you say, does help make the case that what the government does to help people in hard economic times matters. So the extent to which that's going to be an influential argument, we'll have to see over coming days or weeks. Amy Goldstein, national health care policy reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be with you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.